Our scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. That's Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Well, good morning again. I would like to begin, as, as we prepare to look at God's Word together this morning, by asking you a question. What do you think is the biggest threat to the gospel today? What do you think is the biggest threat to the gospel today? Now, probably some of us begin thinking about the rise and spread of Islam in our world today. That can certainly threaten the gospel in some way. Some of you would begin to speak of the secularization of our culture today. More and more young people growing up outside the church and with no knowledge of the Bible or of Jesus Christ. Others of you would point us to Hollywood, to the entertainment industry which certainly throws at us messages and values that are without a doubt opposed to the gospel. Some of us might even feel that our own government is beginning to pose a threat to the gospel. I want to suggest, though, that if we ask the Apostle Paul that question, what is the greatest threat to the gospel? He wouldn't go first to forces coming at the church from outside of it. Islam, secular culture, entertainment, government. I think Paul would point us to a force that can easily attack the gospel of Jesus Christ from within the community of believers. If we said, Paul, what is the biggest threat to the gospel? I believe he might very well answer, it's self-confidence. That's what it is, self-confidence. Confidence in self when it comes to salvation. 
there is no greater threat to the gospel of grace than the tendency we all have as human beings to put confidence in ourselves rather than in Jesus alone when it comes to finding favor before the throne of God. Now, just in case you don't believe that this threat could creep into our church and our lives, I want you to take a simple test with me. It's a a bit of a modified version of an example that an author named Jerry Bridges gives in one of his books on the gospel. It's called the good day, bad day test. So first, think about a good day that you've had lately. You wake up the first time your alarm sounds. You have a rich devotional time and a good few minutes of prayer with the Lord. You enjoy some friendly conversation with your family or your spouse or your roommates before you get ready to go about your day. You then go on to have an effective and efficient day of work, and you even invite a coworker to come to church with you that Sunday. It's a good day. Then think about a bad day. You sleep through your alarm. You miss your devotions because you're in such a hurry. You're a bit harsh with your family, and you grumpily get ready for work and then trudge out the door. When you get to work or school, you're tired, and you don't get a lot done. Now, I'm not saying those things don't matter. This is a bad day, remember. Now, as you compare those two, on which day do you tend to have more confidence regarding your standing before God? This is an illustration for people who are in Christ, people who are washed by His blood and justified through faith in Him. But do you tend to feel that you have more favor with God on a good day than on a bad day? Friends, this can creep in so easily to our lives. Self-confidence. Basing our standing before God on our deeds and not on Christ and His work. In fact, I would argue that we're wired this way. And we need to hear the gospel again and again and again in order to free us from our tendency toward self-confidence. So let's look together at what God's Word has for us today to that end. Philippians 3, 1. Our passage begins with one more call from Paul to rejoice. He starts this way, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. This has been a major theme in the book so far, this need to have gospel joy in all circumstances. But at this point, Paul adds an interesting phrase to this call for joy. He tells them that for him to tell them this again is safe for them. Their joy in Christ has to do with their safety. So there's a security issue here for the Philippians. They need to be kept safe from something or someone. And it doesn't take long to discover who that someone is. We'll look down to verses 2 and 3. Because what Paul does next is give us a major contrast. It's a contrast really that frames his entire discussion in the passage. A contrast between two very different kinds of people. Group 1, the dogs. And group two, the true circumcision. Look again at verses two to three. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Who are these dogs? This is group one, these dogs, evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. Who are they? Well, to put it simply, these are the opponents of the true gospel. This is the threat that we began discussing. Not just Jews, but this group that we often call Judaizers. It was a group of Jews who obviously were harassing the Gentile believers in Philippi in a significant way, pressing them to be circumcised, bragging about their Jewish heritage, hinting not so subtly that Gentile believers in God didn't quite have the same credentials that they had, spiritually speaking. Now, right away, we need to stop and acknowledge something. The very fact that Paul needs to tell the Philippian believers to look out implies that there was a danger here. He says that three times in verse 2. Look out, look out, look out. If the Philippian believers easily recognized that these Judaizers were off their rockers, Paul wouldn't have needed to warn them in such an intentional way. He wouldn't need to say, look out. The Philippian believers were susceptible to the influence of these Jews. They didn't seem crazy to them. They crept into the Philippians' community. Uh, They came in under the guise of holiness and under the guise of intense spirituality. And they began to bend the Philippians' ears to their teaching and influence. Why were they so susceptible to the teaching of these Judaizers? Well, I think it's for the same reason that we are susceptible today to this idea of earning our salvation with God. We, just as they, tend towards self-confidence. Our default is to, with confidence in ourselves, try to make our way to God. That's our default position as human beings. Well, Paul will have none of this. Interestingly enough, Paul actually uses the word that the Judaizers use to describe the Gentiles, dogs, to describe them. His phrase, evildoers, is a play on words relating to their keeping of the law. He's saying they're not lawdoers, they're evildoers. And then he describes the very thing that they think makes them spiritually and ritually clean, circumcision, as a mutilation of the flesh. Pastor Eric McKitty pointed out to me earlier this week that all of the three main words Paul uses here in this phrase, uh, dogs, mutilators of the flesh, evildoers, in fact, start with the same Greek letter, mu. So it's like Paul is spitting this phrase out with violent alliteration regarding these people who have infiltrated the Philippian church. He is using biting irony and vicious sarcasm as he describes these people, these threats to the gospel. So what is it about these people that makes Paul get so nasty? Well, it's that they're missing the grace of God. They've made human effort big and the cross of Jesus small. They're all about what they can do and not what Jesus has done for Gentiles as well as for Jews. So that's group one. Group two, Paul calls the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What did circumcision always symbolize, even in the Old Testament? It meant being set apart as belonging to God. 
it was never about just a physical ritual, something that actually made a person clean. It was a physical sign of what was always meant to be a spiritual reality. So, what people are really clean before God, which people really belong to Him, Paul says it's those who are in Christ. It's us. It's you guys, Philippian believers, those who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. It's not about the flesh, Paul says. It's all about Jesus. There's one main contrast in this passage that we have to get straight. It's this contrast between these two groups and then what they do. One group puts confidence in the flesh and the other group glories in Christ. Confidence in the flesh and glorying in Christ. Those are our options. Those were Paul's options. Those were the Philippians' options. Every human being really who has ever lived has had to make the choice between putting confidence in the flesh or glorying in Christ. Flesh or Christ. The text leads us to that contrast, these two options. Look at how often Paul repeats that phrase, confidence in the flesh, in verse 3 and 4. He says it once in verse 3, then he repeats it twice in verse 4. Then, the final verses of our passage, really, Paul begins breaking down and explaining what it means for him to glory in Christ. So verses 2 to 3 really are our theme for the passage today, especially 3. It's this choice. Confidence in the flesh or glorying in Christ. Paul is going to go on to show us the emptiness of self-confidence and the eternal joy of glorying in Christ. Now, what Paul does next as we move to verses 4 to 6 is really kind of awesome. He's made his main point, this contrast between confidence in the flesh and glorying in Christ, that those who attach spiritual significance to legalistic rituals and physical signs are, are just dogs who don't get the gospel. But now he takes the discussion to a whole new level. He essentially says to the Judaizers, these people who seek favor with God through their obedience and their actions and their perfect Jewishness, that he's got more than they have anyway. You see, these are people who have been trying to, for their entire lives, make a stack of good deeds to heaven, thereby earning their favor with God. Paul stops at this point and says, my stack is bigger than your stack. He begins as if it's almost an aside. Look at verse 4. Though I myself, he says, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And then he dives in completely. I have more reason than any of you for confidence in the flesh, he says in verse 4. My stack is bigger than all of your stacks. Then he begins to mention specific evidence of this, which we would do well to understand. Here's Paul's list. Are you ready? Here's his stack. Circumcised on the eighth day. That is, he was, he was circumcised in accordance with the law at exactly the right time. Check. Of the people of Israel, he was ethnically Jewish. He belonged to God's ethnic people from the Old Testament. Check. Of the tribe of Benjamin. So not only is he Jewish, Paul knew his tribe and his heritage, probably something that a lot of his contemporary Jews would have lost track of over the years. A Hebrew of Hebrews. That is, it's a superlative. In some ways, he's saying, I am the ultimate Jew. As to the law, a Pharisee. 
Paul is reminding the Philippians that he was part of the most strict religious group of his day. He knew the law inside out and he studied and served with diligence. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. For Pharisees who who rejected Jesus as a blasphemer, to persecute the followers of Jesus would have actually been a sign of religious commitment and passion. So this is a positive on Paul's list. And then finally, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul, as a Pharisee, would have kept the law to the letter, down to the most minute detail. Here's the point. Paul has a huge, gigantic stack. Humanly speaking, if anyone should be able to achieve righteousness through what he can do, it's Paul. If salvation can be earned by piling stuff up, Paul's got it because he has the biggest pile. Now listen, let's not pretend we don't make our own stacks. We do this. You've done it, and I've done it. What do we pile up toward heaven? Our generosity? I give away my money to good causes, to the church, to missionaries. My church service and involvement, I'm always here, always serving, helping with this program and this ministry. I've got good kids. I've raised kids who love the Lord. I'm part of generations of of Christian parents and grandparents, this heritage of Christianity. I do my devotions every single day. I'm part of a Bible study group and a small group. Or maybe just I'm I'm not doing really bad stuff. So, So this sense of piling up our comparative righteousness so we look around at other people's stacks and we begin to feel good because ours are higher than theirs. Failing to see, obviously, that we're not to compare ourselves to others but to the infinite holiness of God. Stacks. If we're not careful, we can actually use good things as the basis of giving us confidence in the flesh rather than glorying in Christ. That's what happened for the Jewish people in Paul's day. Good things, the law, their heritage, their prayers, their religious practices became barriers to God himself when those things became the basis for their salvation. And that can happen to us today. Good things can actually keep us from understanding and accepting the grace of God. What's your stack? What's your list? What tempts you to rely on self-confidence when it comes to favor with God? I'll tell you mine. Faithful husband, trying hard to be a godly father. I'm a pastor, for heaven's sake. All of these things I am tempted to make into a stack to somehow see myself at least partially as justified by those things. It may be pastors who need this passage more than anyone else. I've got to knock down my stack too. What is my hope? Where is my confidence for favor and acceptance with God? It is in Christ alone. 
Not in Christ and being a really good pastor. Not in Christ and being a really good husband and a really good dad. In Christ. Because at the end of the day, when I stand before the throne of God, my ministry will not save me. But Jesus' blood can. So Paul is showing us in these first few verses the utter emptiness of self-confidence, the utter impotence of our own efforts to earn favor with God. Really what Paul wants us to get, the reason he's gone into all of this in some ways foolishness is this. His stack is bigger, yeah, but it's still just a stack Just like everybody else's, it's made up of the same worthless garbage as theirs. And I'm not being more explicit than Paul when I call it garbage. Look down to verses 7 and 8. We find in verse 7 the major transition in this passage from from focusing on the emptiness of self-confidence to moving into glorying in Christ. Look at verses 7 to 8. Paul says, But whatever gain I had... I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says, all of that, that stack that I could make, that self-confidence that I could have, I put it aside. Paul keeps repeating this, loss, 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 and then he finally calls all of these fleshly pursuits rubbish. The word is a little more explicit in the Greek. It refers to stinky, smelly garbage. That was funny, yeah. When it comes to our good deeds done in order to earn our way into God's favor, that is what they amount to, Paul is saying, festering waste. Now, it seems that Paul is using almost financial language here as well, which may have been appropriate for the Philippian context, a place of business, uh, uh, thriving work. We know that Lydia, for example, was a merchant there who sold purple, purple cloth. But he's using financial language, the surpassing worth of Christ. He speaks in terms of loss and gain. He talks about counting as loss. So if you're a visual person, one way you can kind of portray this entire passage is with two columns, a loss column and a gain column, both pertaining to salvation specifically. When it comes to being made right with God, when it comes to being saved, what goes in the loss column? Paul says everything, including our good deeds. When it comes to salvation, everything goes in the loss column. And in the gain column, just Christ. Christ fills up the gain column when it comes to salvation, when it comes to being made right before God. It's Christ and only Christ. And that leads to an important clarification that we do need to make briefly here. This passage is not teaching against good deeds. It's not teaching against the pursuit of holiness in the context of the Christian life. Paul is not saying that moral living done in Christ is worthless. He is saying that legalistic rules done to earn saving favor with God are worthless garbage. They stink. The point of the Judaizers' efforts was to save themselves. 
their stack was directly geared at earning favor with God. That is what does not work. That is what Paul calls rubbish. Well, why? Why? Why ultimately is this the case? Why putting away confidence confidence in the flesh and glorying in Christ? Well, it's because of righteousness. Right standing with God. Righteousness is Paul's reason. Look at verse 9 with me. Paul says this, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That idea is the theological center of this passage. It's the why for everything that Paul's saying. It's the foundation. It's this, righteousness from God through faith and nowhere else. Why must we glory in Christ rather than put confidence in the flesh? Because that's the only way to righteousness, right standing with God. Now, when we really think about that, it should be obvious to us, shouldn't it? The infinitely holy God of the universe created us. We, in Adam and Eve, fell, and we are now born into a world held captive by sin. We're born into rebellion against our Creator. Our own hearts, too, are trapped in sin. There's this infinite chasm between fallen humanity and the perfectly, infinitely holy Creator. As if we could make that right by stacking up a few good deeds. God himself has to make that right. In Christ, he kicks over our stack and shows us that an infinitely high gap has to be crossed in order for reconciliation to happen between sinful people and a holy God. Nothing man-made will do. God's Son, God in human flesh, is alone capable of bridging that gap. That is the essence of the gospel of grace, friends. This is why we keep talking about the gospel week after week in this place. It's why proclaiming the gospel is our motto as a church. It's because as hopeless as it is to put confidence in the flesh, there is eternal hope and real salvation to be found through glorying in Christ as Savior and Lord, entrusting Him, entrusting what He has done to make things right between sinful people and a holy God in His body on a cross. That's the beauty of the gospel. Now, we need to come back to our own stacks for just a moment at this point. Because far too often we come to God looking to Jesus in some way but also keeping our stacks stacked, okay? Now, let me explain what I mean. We know we need grace, at least some grace. We know we need Jesus' forgiveness for our sins, and we certainly know that we need him to make us better people. But deep down, we have this underlying belief that we are pretty good and that we just need Jesus to improve us a little bit. We want him but we want him so that he can top off our stack to, to make our goodness even more good. That is not what Paul is teaching here. 
Jesus is not an improvement on an already good life and, and, and on an already impressive stack of good deeds. He's not an extra addition on an already well-built house. Jesus doesn't somehow push us over the top in earning favor with God. Jesus does everything. His grace is everything. In fact, often he needs to not help us build our stack, but he needs to forgive us for the attitude we had in building the stack in the first place. We need his mercy and his blood to wash us clean from our self-righteousness from ever even thinking that we could be good enough for a holy God. This is why Paul keeps saying, loss, 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 and then finally, rubbish. My stack was nothing. In fact, it kept me from you, Jesus. My self-righteousness, my dreams that I could earn favor with God needed to be demolished. Friends, we must not dare come to Jesus with something in our hands, with a stack of good deeds that we imagine we could add to his death for sin and his gift of righteousness. If we come with any sense of confidence in the flesh, we've missed it. We've misunderstood grace. We're not, to use Paul's words, glorying in Jesus The biblical response, the biblical way that we come to God is in the words of the hymn writer, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's how we come to Jesus. When it comes to our salvation, we cannot have any confidence in ourselves. None. Confidence is gone except that we put all of it in Christ. When we really get grace, we understand that our stacks themselves, rather than adding to our favor with God, might have actually been a barrier to him in the first place. There is no room for confidence in the flesh for those who understand what Martin Luther called alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes completely from outside of ourselves, from Jesus, only through faith in him alone. There's no room for confidence there. That's why the gospel ultimately is not good advice. It's good news. Not advice about how we can better, by our own power, earn favor with God. It's good news about what God in Christ has done. Defeating our sin by his death on the cross and defeating death forever by the power of his resurrection. And so finally, as we begin to close, we move to Paul's attitude. Paul's attitude as he glories in Christ. You see, Paul has referred to this grace of Christ as that which is of surpassing worth. When we get this, when we get the gospel, when we get grace, we begin to realize that nothing on earth could compare to the salvation we have in Christ. Nothing on earth could compare to our Savior. Not our good deeds, not our own efforts, but also not earthly fame or fortune or even the best relationships this life has to offer. Surpassing worth is knowing Him. When we really get grace, we just want more of Jesus. And that's why Paul ends this section the way he does. Listen again to the final two verses of this passage. What's Paul's response 
to really finding grace and righteousness and salvation in Jesus. Here it is. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. You can hear the repetition of that pronoun. Paul is saying that he wants Jesus, more of Jesus, no matter what. Just listen to his repetition of phrases to this end throughout the passage. Knowing Jesus, Paul says, is of surpassing worth, verse 8. He'll suffer the loss of all things for for his sake, verse 8. His goal is simply and only to gain Christ, verse 8. He wants more than anything else to know him, verse 10. Here is a man who has had the right response to the amazing grace of God. It is the response of every true Christian. Jesus becomes not just a part of your life, but your greatest prize. Paul, a man who had everything in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the Jewish community, has seen the surpassing worth of Jesus. Grace and righteousness through him, eternal life through his resurrection power, and he now needs nothing else. And interestingly, what comes with an understanding of salvation by grace for Paul is a willingness to suffer. Look again at verse 10. Paul says that I may share in his sufferings that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Concern even with comfort and security goes out the window in Paul's pursuit of Christ. To get him to get eternal life in Jesus, that becomes Paul's greatest pursuit and his greatest prize. Pastoral resident Josh Stringer put it this way as as we talked about this passage earlier this week. He said, Paul is redefining here what it means to be safe. Remember, our passage started with that call to joy from Paul in order that the Philippian believers might be safe. What is most safe for them? What is most safe for the Philippian believers? It's clinging to Jesus. It's wanting more of Jesus, even in the midst of earthly suffering. That's safety. By any means possible, whatever it takes, clinging to Jesus. Now here's one final question on that point. Because of the grace that you found in Jesus, has he truly become your ultimate prize? Do you view Jesus as of surpassing worth? That is surpassing, overshadowing, far outweighing the worth of anything else. Is he your chief pursuit? And in that pursuit of Christ, are you willing even to suffer to know him and to be found in him if that's what it takes? That is the right response to the gospel. That is glorying in Jesus. Well, we have a choice before us today. Will we put confidence in the flesh or will we glory in Christ? Will we stack up our good deeds or will we rest in the salvation that has been once for all accomplished for us on the cross and the righteousness that's been given to us through faith in Christ? We'll end with these words from David Dixon, he was a Scottish minister in the 1700s. 
I think these words speak to what is an appropriate response for all of us to the gospel. Here's what he says. I have taken my good deeds and bad deeds and thrown them in a heap and fled from them both to Christ. And in him I have peace. Let's pray. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Lord, we praise you for Christ. May he be our great prize. Amen.